Father, uh, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise. Father, praise is befitting of you because in you is all wisdom, the ability to fix all things, the ability and know-how to problem-solve what is most deeply broken and messed up. Chief among that is us. Father, we pray as we come into this house that you would pastor us, you would shepherd us, you would teach us. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come in such a way that you would compel even a few of us to repent today. That as we have a hard conversation with our own heart and we see some things that are out of joint, that Father, through your grace, penance, you would realign what gets so easily taken out of tune. And so, Father, through your word, to the glory of Jesus, who died for our sins, our shortcomings, our glory thieving. God, I pray today for anyone here um, who have not found that the meaning of life is to know you and to enjoy you and to dwell eternally in your presence. Father, this is all about you, and so uh, get us out of the way so your word and your truth may be clear. We pray that in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. amen. If you got the PowerPoint, uh, we're going to start off. Uh, we've been walking through the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's a part of Hebrew wisdom literature thousands of years before Socrates, Aristotle, or Plato. Um, God um, brought about this book spelling out the wisdom of his truth. Now, uh, we've talked about wisdom and foolishness in the last couple of weeks, but today I want to start off by talking about a very particular church. Um, so go, called Hagia Sophia. Hagia Sophia. In, in, in the 300s, the Roman Empire was moved from Rome over to a town called Constantinople in the 300s. This began a part of Christian history often called Byzantium or Byzantine Empire. They moved over to a place that is modern-day Istanbul in Turkey. It's a seaport, and as they move Christianity and the Roman Empire over that direction, it amounts to a crazy amount of wealth. That for over a thousand years, Christianity prospered in Byzantium. Now there's kind of like slaughtering and all kinds of terrible things that happened at that time, but it was a center that propagated Christianity all over the world in this town called Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul in Turkey. They built a church there. All right, so go to the next slide. I want to show you a picture of the church. Um, or delete the whole thing. It, you know, whatever. All right. So this is what it looks like. First impression. Tell me this isn't wrong. That looks like a mosque. That's because today it is. Number two is that the original design for mosques was ripped off from Christians. The idea of these structures of domes with towers was not invented by Muslims. It was invented by Christians. Christians invented the shape of dome structure with the geometry on the outside. In the east, this is what churches look like. Most churches that you think of are Roman descent churches with like gothic arches and things that's in the west but this is in the east and the best architect came up with this design what is going to happen is when the ottomans come uh, and muslims come they conquer christian lands they take over church buildings and they adopt this as the space for for muslims so this even this idea is not not originated with muslims it originated with christians and they built this was the most glorious church built at that time, Hagia Sophia. The name of this church is Holy Hagia Wisdom, Sophia. So if you know a girl named Sophia, her name means wisdom, Hagia Sophia. This is Holy Wisdom is what they named this church. This is the equivalent of St. Peter's in the Vatican. Imagine that um, Vatican City in Rome was not Roman Catholic, but it was conquered uh, by Muslims. This is what happened to the Eastern Orthodox Church. Their most sacred town, Constantinople, was conquered, and they've taken this church. Go to the next slide. You can look at another 
it, it's right here really close to ocean. Isn't that beautiful? Um, just a park and, and green around it. This was the center of Christianity. The idea of why it was named Hagia Sophia is the idea that it's not about man's wisdom, but that wisdom, true wisdom, comes from God. It was the wisdom of God who sent Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to conquer sin, death, and hell. This is another way, basically this church is named after Jesus. Jesus is the holy wisdom of God that has, as we've been talking in Ecclesiastes, that is not from under the sun, but beyond the sun, that has entered into human history to save sinners like you. Alright, go to the next slide. Now inside this, they had such a concept of light. So as light comes in there, it would hit all this gold stuff and, and kind of, you might think it's a little bit gaudy, but they used natural architecture to illuminate the room and they created art on the walls that you can even see some of the angels in the corner of the dome. And so they had um, this idea that wisdom is light and it brings reason and understanding and beauty and art. Okay? Now, what happened? Go to the next slide. When Muslims conquered it, um, in 1453, the Ottomans finally uh, put the death blow in Byzantium and conquered the city and slaughtered millions of Christians. What they did was they covered with cheap plaster all of the Christian art. So Muslims cannot depict people in their religion. They can't um, draw things. The only thing that they can have is geometric shapes. So if you ever see like inside of a mosque, there's just geometric shapes and there's not like depictions of Muhammad or depictions of like Jonah and the whale or something like that. It's because they're not, it, it, Muhammad did it. So these big spheres are them putting Quranic verses in to try to cover up the art. And they cover tons of the church with plaster and then just basically graffitied on top of it, Islamic things. But here's what's happened in the last like hundred years. It's crazy. Go to the next slide. The plaster has begun to fall. And as it fell, it revealed behind it some of the most valuable, irreplaceable, stunning art you could ever see on the earth. The way they did these mosaics, these small pieces in the gold, in the textures, in the layers of color. It's similar to what's in, in uh, France at uh, Saint-Chapelle in Paris. We don't even know how to make the stained glass that they made a thousand years ago. Where they put color inside the glass, we've lost the art of doing that. Some of this has the same kind of radical techniques with a technology we can't replicate today. And as the plaster begins to fall, it's revealing who the church really is. The cheap stuff is falling because over time and pressure, and it's revealing something deeper and beautiful and glorious. Go to the next one. I found this really interesting when I was there. Um, <laughs> those ruins at the bottom are Viking ruins. The Vikings were converted to Christianity at the risk of missionaries who risked their lives to evangelize the Vikings in the Nordic countries. They sailed down to Constantinople in the Middle Ages and defended the church. And of course, like every good Viking, he had to graffiti some ruins there saying, you know, like Hallbrand was here or whatever. Right? And so the Vikings came down and helped defend it but before it eventually fell. Go to the next one. This is a famous picture. Some of you have probably seen this piece of art before depicting Jesus. This church was a place where one of the greatest preachers in church history, John Chrysostom, preached the gospel. He was called the golden mouth preacher. Actually quoted by some of the reformers like Luther and Calvin. So wh why do I put this up here? I think this is this, this church, which is now, you know, since Auditor took over, it's been converted to a museum and only recently because stuff is falling off the sides, the Muslims put really hard to change it back to a mosque. Today it's still a mosque. This church is a lot like the church. This church is a lot like the book of Ecclesiastes. What I mean by that is your life oftentimes was created for the eternal. It was created for beauty and truth 
and for the holy wisdom of God that has come out to display the glory of Jesus. But somewhere around your story, somebody put cheap plaster over your meaning and your purpose. And it just covered up a lot of the beauty that your life is supposed to have. And you start to suddenly believe that you were created for the cheap plaster. You're not created for the light and beauty reflection that the architect built into you. So here's what Solomon is doing in the book of Ecclesiastes. He's putting enough time and pressure. He's touching all the pressure points so that some of that starts to peel back and what you see behind it is Jesus. What you see behind it is the God who meant more for you than just your job on Monday. There's just more. You are created for more. And this is, this is what Ecclesiastes is doing. And he's doing it systematically. Now, here's one thing I haven't gotten to say yet, but I'll, I want to argue. Some people think of, of um, history as circular, like it's almost reincarnation and kind of Eastern uh, thought. And some think of it, as the Bible does, as linear. I would argue the way that Solomon's going to talk about it in Ecclesiastes is... More like a slinky, all right? It's linear, but it repeats some patterns. It's a slinky going down the stairs until it ends on Monday, right? Like, it's, it's kind of like this, right? And he's going to say there are things that I have experienced in my life that if you can hear them and you can listen to what I'm, what I, what I'm learning in front of you, they can benefit you. And you ain't got to be the same kind of fool that I was. So we've talked about this. There's really two terms that are repeated throughout this book that are absolutely crucial keys for understanding how he's doing this. One is the word havel, which is vanity. It can mean the word like fog or mist or vapor. It can also mean just something transient. It doesn't have to be negative, just something that's here today, gone tomorrow. It can also mean the idea of something meaningless and vain. The second term or idea is the word under the sun. You'll hear it even in the passage that was read. That is, Solomon is saying, I want to look at life from a secular perspective. The materialistic, evolutionary perspective. And I want to look at, and I want to approach that like a skeptic. Not as a skeptic of God, but a skeptic of living life without God. Like, that's not going to go bad for you. And so he just kind of wrestles with that. And here's a couple of the things we talked about like in the weeks before. The first one is that even wisdom itself can be vexing. And he's going to dive deeper into that today. So we said it like this. It's like you may be like type A fixer upper. You know, you snort self-help quotes and you hit Monday with a fury. And you think you can fix everything about you because that's what wisdom is. It's a problem solving ability. But what, what you run into is there's things in your own heart that you can't fix. Right? Nobody, you don't believe me? Anybody ever given up on a New Year's resolution? Is it too early? Go ahead and start working on it now. I'm sure it'll go great for you. By February, the gym will not have that many people. Right? There's just things that your, your ability, you, you just can't fix. And it makes you, and our OCD people in here, get they go crazy. Because about the time they get things ordered, laundry happens again. Right? And, and the kid's room just gets disheveled all over again. It just can't, things just can't stay fixed without God. The other side, he flips and he goes full frivolity. He just parties hard. Right? Every 1980s Coors commercial, he just, he, he gets the sugary highs and he tries to add a laugh track to all of it and he drinks all the Colorado breweries dry. He's an entrepreneur and he, you have a koi fish pond. He planted national forests. Like he did projects after projects. And at the end of it, he's like, there's no person throwing up over a toilet 
from drinking too much that claims to have found the meaning of life. And the more and more that I tried to feed that into my heart, the more and more it left me empty. Because when you take pleasures that God created as good, that are meant to point you to God, and you make them God your, themselves, it doesn't lead you to the nirvana or the heaven or the meaning you're looking for. It actually descends you further and further into hell. So here's the story of Solomon. He fell and plunged headlong into hell, but he kept his eyes open. So he could tell you fools what it was like. says it's all vanity he says it's a wild goose chase with no goose there's no man that dies and is buried with his wind collection and that's all he was grabbing after and see here's the other thing it's like you lack the resources that he didn't lack we think because if we don't if the thing we're pursuing whether it's our job or it's a thousand women, like he had, or if it's laughter. We think that if we just didn't do it hard enough, we didn't go far enough down the path, but he's like, look, I lacked no resources to chase my temptations out in ways you lack resources to do. And it left me emptier. And that's the argument here. He's like, he's a, some sort of combination of Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Hugh Hefner, Stephen Hawking, Einstein. And he's like, none of the things that I was able to plunge myself into gave me what I was looking for. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says to his own heart, I'm going to test you. So here's the language. He gets his life and he puts it in the test tube. He has a hard conversation with it. What is this? Ecclesiastes is this viewpoint of a skeptic. This is the scientific data presented as evidence at your trial about how you live. And he said, he's, now as we get into chapter, or verse 12 in chapter 2, he's going to use the word consider. Let's read a little bit and then we'll, we'll kind of see what he's doing. Here, the word consider, he's laying out the results. So he put his life in the test tube, but now he's going to look at the, like, what, what was the data? What's the evidence? What's the conclusion? Verse 12, so I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man who comes, what can the man do who comes after the king? It's like, brother, you can't go as hard as I go. Like, nobody's getting to this level. Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is a gain in the light than darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I perceive the same event happens to all of them. This is his problem. Okay. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. This is, this is an issue. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also vanity. For the wise as the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been forgotten. We've addressed that already. How the wise, here's his issue, dies just like the fool. Remember, his perspective, there is no eternity, there's no afterlife, there's no, no, no heaven to come, it's just under the sun. And, and if you believe that it's just this life, there is a massive problem that death presents for you. He wise, dies just like the fool. So, verse 17, this is your neighbors right here. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Now, here's what's happening. He's having communion with his own heart. He's considering. He's weighing. A lot of us are really good at having hard conversations with other people about their sin. Very few of us are good at having hard conversations with our own heart. But this is what he's doing. And he's saying, okay... Education, wisdom, and then he's going to go into the next one. And he says, I hated all the toil. So there's kind of two different things that he's going to address 
in our passage today. The first one is the work it takes to become wise. What we might call education. The second is the toil that comes after that education to build something that you benefit from. So here's a really easy Bobby Boucher way to put it. Like Mama said, for most of us in here, we were raised to believe that we need to get an education and get a good job. Come on with me. Right? When you were growing up, it's like, you need to go to school, make good grades. Now, universities have turned twists, and some of us are like, I don't know about this anymore. Like, $400,000 for a gender studies degree. I'm not sure it makes sense anymore. But just bear with me. For most of our upbringing in school, you needed to go to school, get good grades, get a job so that you can make money. Right? It may not have been laid out to us that clear, but that's basically what's happened. When you got bad grades, you got in trouble. And when you started getting older, people started asking the question, what are you going to do with your life? What are you going to become? And a lot of times, when I, I taught at university, almost every student that talked to me about the degree that they chose, they chose it not because it's like, this is how I'm crafted to glorify God. It's because it made money. Amen or oh me. And is this not exactly what this is dealing with in this chapter? It's like what your mama said. You got you to go to school and you got to make good grades so that you can get a job and that you can make money. Now, here's his beginning issue that he's already talked about. Gaining wisdom is vexing. And it can lead to a life of sorrow. Like, do you remember going to school? Right? Some of you are like, yeah, it's like yesterday. Um, okay, you, do you remember the pressure to get a good GPA? Some of us in here competed to be valedictorian, right? Some of us thought about the ACT, the SAT, and every other thing in school that has three letters and ends in a T, right? We, we showed up and competed against other people to get really good grades. Have you ever stayed up all night to write a paper? Some of you are like, no, I, I did not. Listen, you stayed up all night to write a paper, but have you ever stayed up all night praying? I'm not trying to Jesus juke you. I'm just throwing it out. This is me too. You ever stayed up all night to get marriage counseling to make sure that you're, you know, studying a book on marriage so that you know you're marrying the right person? Oh, we got all these other really important things we won't stay up all night for, but you stayed up all night to write a paper about something you never even cared about. Right? Do you, do you remember the immense amount of pressure to go to school and to do well at school? Solomon is coming and saying, listen, your boy aced all the tests. I was the smartest kid outside of Jesus ever. I got all the degrees, all the book smarts, and it didn't do it for me. Hey, you you want to get the best job? I became king. There ain't no top job above king. I'm the, I'm the, I'm the assistant to the assistant to the regional manager, right? He's king, brother. Like, he's got it. Money? You want money? He's like, I got money all day long. And still, something is still missing. Can you say that? Have you really pursued education and got to the end of it and even got the job you wanted? And have you ever stopped and been like, it still didn't, it didn't fill me all the way. A few years later, you're looking for another job, man. Something is missing. There's more to life than one more degree in an expensive frame on our wall. Something's missing. Um, my wife, I'm sorry, this illustration, this is like four of you are going to appreciate this. My wife took some time away with the girls and her mother and left. 
which meant I got to do my own grocery shopping, which I enjoy immensely, all right? Because I buy all the stuff she won't buy for me. And there's things that she, she, my wife is like amazing pioneer woman level cook, but there's things she doesn't like, and if she doesn't like it, she don't cook it for me. I love pea salad, all right? Like all in on pea salad. She left, I went straight to the grocery store and bought stuff for pea salad. There's something about, my wife's an amazing cook, I want to say that six or seven more times. But there's something off in her pea salad. It just doesn't taste like my mom made it, or my grandma. So I got to the store, and I was like, going through the list of things that are in pea salad, and I'm like, something is missing here. I called my mom, and I was like, Mom, what do you put in your pea salad? And here, this staggered me. I was unaware of what I've been eating my whole life. One, she's like, squeeze a fresh lemon in there. Never heard that before. I've never tasted lemon in pea salad. Granulated sugar. It's like, we're putting sugar in pea salad? We are Americans. Three, apple cider vinegar. Anybody, anybody tried a little of that? Never heard that come out in the pea salad recipe. So I bought all these things and put inside it. When it was done, people, I, this, is, this is humble brag. It was good. Super good. But there's things that when you eat it, you don't taste on the surface. But if it's missing, anybody done a recipe and you left out something critical and it just turned out bad. Here's what Solomon is saying. Something, there's an ingredient missing. And it makes it taste not right. It doesn't develop the right way. It's messed up. There's an, so here's the idea. You can give a human, like they have these hierarchy of needs that humans have. Like shelter is like one of them. Food, water. Like there's these hierarchies of things that we need. But you can give people shelter, food, water, and all the essential biological things that they need. But if a human loses hope, they die. Now, you, you don't see that when someone's walking down the street, but it's an essential ingredient. If a person doesn't have meaning, they eventually die. Now, some die short in suicide, and some die long in a tedious, slow death. But without the mixture of God and meaning and purpose, it's all the same. You may not taste it on the surface, but deep down in someone, that essential ingredient and so here's his problem even beyond this is his problem on top of his problem with education it's death like you worked your butt off learning how to do math and solve for x and one day you're gonna die and it doesn't matter what grade you got does anybody even remember the grade you got in seventh grade math Right? Yeah. Some of you can get some really good guesses going. But you stressed over it in the time, didn't you? And he's like, here's what he's saying. Death has this leveling effect for the secular person with no eternity. Nothing you do in this life matters beyond the grave. It has this leveling effect. The best scholar you know and the biggest idiot you know both end up at the same destination room temperature and six feet under. And that creates a problem for him. Because he's like, why the mess am I wearing myself out if I'm going to end up just like the fool? It bothers him. It bothers him. There's an old proverb that says, the pawn and the king go into the same box at the end of the game. And that bothers him. It bothers him. Why strive? Why try? Why put in all the effort? I know for some of you that are homeschooling, it's like, you've got to bring this back to Jesus because my kid is not doing math on Monday. Right? Why strive? Why put in the effort? If nothing matters, and, the, and death is going to put us both in a box, why? Here's, here's maybe a, a good way of explaining his argument. There's this thing in American culture that makes no sense. And it's called the two-week notice. 
The two-week notice is bananas. And the reason why it's bananas is you're announcing that you're leaving and you're quitting in two weeks. Like it's over. Like we're ending this relationship. And for those, is not the two weeks notice if the best time ever to work at a job? If they ask you to do something, you're like, you know, it's going to be minimal effort, right? Like, I got two weeks left. What are you going to do? Fire me? It's like, I'm on my way out here. It's like essentially minimal effort. You're showing up. The, the two weeks is on the clock. It's essentially in politics what we call being a lame duck president, right? You, you're doing nothing during that time. Do you remember the last day of school? Was there test on that when you were in like ninth grade? Do you remember writing papers on the last day of school? No, what you did is you watched movies on that cart they brought them around on. What, you know, some of our schools, you do that all the time. It's different. Why were you watching movies on the last day? Because ain't nobody trying to work. Why? Because nothing is coming after today. Because what comes after is nothing. You can't hold me accountable. You can't do nothing. So today... I accomplish nothing. It's the two-week notice of life where you're coasting. It's pointless even to show up. Listen, if you're not going to be here tomorrow, why work yourself to death today? Ecclesiastes is nothing coming after changes how you live, act, and work today. But the Bible is going to say there is something coming after called the judgment where every thought, word, and deed will be held accountable. Everything you do has meaning. That's what the Bible is going to teach. But if you take on the secular mindset that nothing comes after, why not rape, pillage, and commit genocide? Nothing matters. Do you see how he's pressing the pressure point of a purely secular viewpoint and it's just crumbling because what comes after matters now look at verse 13 verse 13 is gonna it's a caveat it's a rabbit trail verse 13 is he's still like it's better to be wise than a fool though right and that what he's saying because because light is better than darkness it's better to have your eyes in the head it means like it's better to be wise and at least know that the trouble you got, and to be able to navigate it. If you're, it, it's kind of this John Wayne quote of like, like, um, if you're going to be dumb, you, you better be tough. Because life is going to be hard for all of us, but if you're dumb, it's like double hard. You have unnecessary difficulties when you're a fool. So he's not saying that wisdom isn't better than foolishness. He's just saying that wisdom is not going to fulfill you apart from God. There will be no joy in it. Get all the degrees you want. Get all the pieces of paper. It's just not going to work. The second one is tied to it. Verse 18, I hated all my toil, which I toil under the sun, seeing, that's part of his next problem, that I must leave it to a man who will come after me. And who knows whether be wise or fool. Yet he will be master over all which I toiled. Right? Kids, imagine your sibling getting all your Pokemon cards. And use my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil and labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who is toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is also vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving a heart with he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are, listen to this language, full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. And even in the night, have you been here before? His heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Here's his argument on the base level. We've already talked about this, but again, like a slinky, he's going to keep revisiting these things. The first problem is that work is frustrating, amen? And this isn't just talking about your nine to five, though it is certainly that. It is all things that you have a responsibility for. 
Raising kids can be really frustrating because you only told them 10,000 times not to do that. And that's exactly what they do. Right? You could pour your life and heart and love into a kid and they can wander from the Lord. Right? You could spend all your time building a house only for a hurricane to knock it down. You can build a career that in a moment's notice, in a new recession, it's just gone. And you get so much of your identity from that work, which the leading cause of suicide for men over 30, one common denominator is joblessness, unemployment. Why? Because so much of their meaning is tied into that. And work can fight back against you. We're going to talk a little bit about that next week. Your investments in crypto can go from you're a billionaire to a zero. Like that. There's things about work. It's cursed. It breaks. Your work rebels against you. It doesn't come together. Here's what work can be. Tell me I'm wrong. Constant problems. Don't you show up sometimes at work and it's like, what is your job except problem solving? Again. Church, listen. Our work treats us like we treat God. It rebels. It, re- it invents new ways to go wrong. Our work treats us like we treat God. That's just your secular jobs. It's not me here in the church. So here's what he's going to say about it in verse 23. Sorrow, vexation, it steals your rest. This is why Jesus comes and he says, come unto me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Because you're not finding it in 16-hour days. You're not finding it in your work. You're not finding it in your toil. So at base level, he's talking about why Americans like us self-medicate with coffee. Why we got to be juiced to the gills with caffeine to get up and go do what we need to do today. Why we got to have energy drinks on top of that. Why we got to take drugs like Adderall for focus, and then at the end of the day, we got to take sleeping pills to turn it off. Why? Just so we can get through another Monday. And, and then it gets into this cycle of like you're laying on your bed and you can't stop thinking. Anybody been there? Like you start thinking about your fears and the things you have to tackle. You think about the conflict and the relationships you have and how you don't want to do it anymore. And you start going through these things and you can't turn it off. Like I had a time when I was early in ministry, like my first five years in ministry, I just couldn't sleep. I was sleeping like four or five hours a night because I started thinking about all the things I had to do the next day. and had to read, I had to meet with this person, I was dealing with this thing. And one of the things I had to develop a habit of doing is praying myself to sleep. And I know that like many of us, we were taught to feel ashamed if you fall asleep praying. I think it's glorious. Right? I started to get a habit of having to write down all the things I had to do the next day on a piece of paper. I'd take it to another room, set it in another room, come back in and begin to pray until I could fall asleep. And sometimes that was some of the most peaceful moments I've had with God. Right? But for some of us, we can't, we can't quit up here. Because the to-do list is too long. So, Christian, listen to me. Ask this question. Who wrote the software that's running in your head? Like, who created this software pattern that you're running? Is it your creator or is it your enemy? Are you sure that this software that you're just running in your computer upstairs has no viruses? If you can't sleep, You think that's from the Lord? Who the scripture says is the giver of rest, the giver of peace. He's the Lord of Sabbath. 
there might be a chance that your sleep is trying to tell you that there are some things out of joint with God. I think that Solomon's coming at us and saying, before you get to your midlife crisis, examine maybe some lies that you've been told about education and work. You know, your midlife crisis might just be the first time that you're not going to school and trying to get a job and make money. It might be the first time where you're getting honest with yourself about the lie that you were sold about education and work being able to give you meaning. It might just be that. And a lot of us, by the time we got there, it was too late. Because we'd already given our lives to this thing. It was really hard to repent. Um, There's this crazy statistic uh, that is out there. I I don't know exactly what all to do with it. But it's for the first time in American history, more uh, women over 30 are unmarried than married and have no kids. This is why a lot of people are predicting a huge population drop-off for the whole planet, but especially in the United States. And a lot of women, when they hit 30, this is just biological fact, 90% of their eggs are gone. 90% of their eggs are gone, so it's harder for them to have children and, and different things. Like, I don't know if you know this, but having kids is kind of a young kid's, like young person's game, all right? And so what's happened is, is that disproportionately, women are represented in universities than men now. There's more women in university than men. And what are they doing? They're striving after education and career, oftentimes during their most fertile years to have a family and have kids, and they're getting to this phase in their life where they're 30, 40, 50, and they don't have kids, a family, or any of these sort of things, but they hit a wall where they want to. And this has caused women to back out of careers in their 30s and 40s. Because they start to kind of crawfish and realize, I maybe don't want to have a career at expense to family. Right? But here's the thing. They're chasing after and pressured to be just like a man and having a career and doing that at expense to everything. And they just hit a wall. Right around the midlife. And here's, in similar things to all of us. There are lies that our culture can feed us that Solomon is like, if you buy into that, you've got a crisis coming. Because it cannot, your job cannot support the weight of your meaning and purpose. It's not created for it. Get everywhere you want to go in your career and it won't do it for you, church. He alone does that for you. Do you hear me? And yet we live in a culture chasing harder and harder after toil, thinking that toil will give us the purpose and meaning found in God alone. My goodness. Okay, so that's his base problem with work. Let's go a little bit further on top of that. Build. Your base problem is work. The problem on top of work is what he says in verse 18. This is the problem on top of the problem. Who gets all the juice for all your squeezing? That's the problem on top of the problem. Your effort, your 16-hour days, you penny-pinched, you made wise decisions, you saved, you worked hard. I mean, you work yourself to the bone, right? Hot, cold, doesn't matter. You worked your butt off. Then who gets all of it at the end of your life? Now, some of us, you got kids here and you're thinking, I know who gets it, it's my kids. But he's going to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. But what if your kid's an idiot? You ever think about that one? What? This is really fascinating. We talked about there's a thousand women in Solomon's life from last week's sermon, right? Do you know how many sons it's recorded that he had? Now, did he have more? Maybe, yeah. He had daughters, for sure, they're recorded. But as far as recorded son, they have one, Rehoboam, who is going to split Israel and Judah. Do you know why in the Bible, sometimes it's referring to Israel and sometimes it's referring to Judah. Sometimes they fight against each other. That's because of his idiot son that splits the kingdom. I know you have no 
illustrations in your life of somebody who's a parent, really wise with money, business, great at something, and they pass it to their kid, and their kid's an absolute idiot. I know you don't think that that happens. Oh, but it does. Do you realize that statistically, on Yahoo Finance released an article saying that wealthy people in America, wealthy people in America, we like to think that the wealthy people have always been wealthy, but in America, among those deemed wealthy, in the first generation, 70% will squander the wealth their parents passed to them. 70%. 70% of people in our culture right now that say are in the 1%, 70% of their kids won't be. By the second generation, it's 90%. 90% of grandkids will blow and squander what their parents give them. That's wild to me, right? Now, I want to push pause here and ask the question, does it have to be? Because there are proverbs that say that as men of our household, you should leave an inheritance to your kids. And I would say, no, it doesn't have to be. I think you can live for eternity. I think you can live and store up for yourselves treasure in heaven and have spiritual God-honoring priorities where moth and rust don't destroy and government can't tax. Your true treasure is in heaven. I believe you can have all that. And I think you can be really wise steward of your resources here. But look, if you don't disciple your kids, you might as well flush everything that is their inheritance down the toilet. Build all you want. And we know people that wear themselves out building an inheritance to pass to kids they never disciple they don't teach, and they're among the 70% and the 90% that you might as well just give it to the church, give it to the poor, support missions, give it to charity, because if you pass it to your idiot kids, they're flushing it down the toilet. So here's the thing. I don't think it's necessarily that way. I would encourage you, live for eternal things in the kingdom. Be really wise with your 401k. Be smart about your business. And also... Disciple your stinking kids to not be idiots. I know that's a lot to ask from a pastor on a Sunday, but let's throw it out there. Do you know that one of the things that changed, sociologists talk about, is like pre-World War II, lots of people passed their kids businesses or skills or tools. If you're from Oklahoma, guns. But you pass certain things to your kids of value, particularly you passed a business. Now, we mostly pass money, and we don't pass skills about how to manage money. Our kids don't know how to invest, they don't know how to save, they don't know how to manage it. And so what happens is most people are experiencing exactly what Solomon experienced. I squeezed and worked and killed myself to build this kingdom, and I'm passing it to an idiot. And it vexes me. Right? And it vexes me. So, here's the thing. Death is going to keep him from being able to continue to manage what he built. It's going to be outside of his reach. Passed to other people. Church, listen. Death is a problem for secular people like your neighbor's. And it's a problem that we need to talk to them about. Because death is coming for all of us. Church, you are going to die. You're going to die. None of us think it's today. I know you got a bad hip and you still think it's not you. But you're going to die. And you are going to give an account to God. It is this leveling thing. It is this witness that God has built into fallen humanity to remind us that our lives are brief. And if you don't believe in God and you don't have an eternal relationship with your Creator, how, are, how do you go to work on Monday? Why are you going? 
What's the point of it? See, what you believe about death and eternity affects Monday. Because if you believe nothing after death, it's dumb to go to work on Monday. Listen, I think homeless people sometimes understand this better than well-employed people. But if everything matters, how you serve your family, how you do your job to the glory of God, how you serve this church, if every word and every thought matters, Monday is pregnant with glory and beauty and opportunity and eternal ripples. You could shine shoes to the glory of God. You can dig ditches to the glory of God. The next time you sit down at a meal with your kids, that's a pregnant opportunity for glory. That you might push them a little bit more towards not being a moron. Push them a little bit more towards the direction of Jesus. See, your education matters. Your work matters. What you believe about death and eternity affects Monday. I heard this quote and I think it's awesome. You are not ready to live until you know what you want on your tombstone. Until you've grappled with the purpose of death and what your death is going to mean, is it delivering you to Jesus or is it the end of everything? You don't even know how to live right and you don't know what to put on your tombstone. Now, this is the last thing, and then I think this is awesome. Look at verse 24. He knows that you, you have the opportunity to get depressed before the end of this book. So he can't wait till chapter 12 to spoil the point of everything. He's going to let you break above the clouds and below the sun, and he's going to give you a little bit of a breather, okay? So we're going to go above the clouds and go back to heaven, as though God exists, heaven exists, and eternity exists. There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Wait a minute. Brother, I thought you just said that toil and eating and it just ain't going to do it for us. What, what are you talking about? This also is, look at your Bible, from the hand of God. So now we're not below the sun anymore. We're saying this is God delivered to you or you don't get it. For, look at the Bible, apart from him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? So there's two things that God does. God creates things that are enjoyable. And the second thing is, He creates the capacity for a sinner such as you to enjoy them. These are two separate and distinct things. The way that a can of peaches is separate from a can opener. One is the thing to be enjoyed. The other gives you the capacity to access it the way God intended it to be accessed. Verse 28, for to the one who pleases him, God has given. When you see the word given like this in the Bible, it's talking about grace. God is the giver of the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. He's the giver of the color purple for your enjoyment. He's the giver of sex. He's the giver of good food. When you eat tacos this afternoon, you don't just say a customary prayer at the front end. You praise him with a hallelujah. He's a giver of wisdom and knowledge. And look at this. This book, Ecclesiastes, is about this word and joy. This is what the book's about. Joy. He ain't got no joy outside of God. There's a joy in God. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting. Futile vanity. Only to give to the one who pleases God. You don't know who gets everything at the end? Those that please God. This is vanity in a striving after the wind. You know who gets to enjoy that which is transitory? The vanity, the, the vapor, the mist? The Christian does. Enjoy it in a way that lost people never will. Put it like this. Better is a bologna sandwich with contentment than prime rib and no joy. Have you heard what 1 Timothy says? 
that godliness plus contentment is great gain? Godliness plus contentment is great gain? He just took, gave us a reprieve here. He took us above the heaven. He says, you know the poor people that are really going to enjoy life on the deepest possible level? It's those that have been grace given it from God. God enables you to enjoy things on a level and a depth that the world will never know apart from Him. Because it's not just the thing, it's the thing plus the one who made the thing. His presence is mingled in with it. Better a bologna sandwich with contentment than prime rib and no joy. I always had a problem with this. In French, they're the most negative people maybe ever. Um, when I lived there and learned French, they have this phrase. I've taught this before, but it bears repeating. They have this phrase. Whenever things are like the best, extraordinary, amazing, we have all these words in English like stupendous, outstanding. If we use all this kind of like hyperbolic language, like superlatives, it's like the best of all time, greatest ever. The French say, je suis content, which is, I am content. And I always thought, that's the most French thing ever. Like you're having the best day of your life, and you're just going to say, I'm content? That's like lame sauce. It's not even that strong. I'm je suis content. I'm content. But as I start to reflect on, it's incredibly biblical. You got good friends and good food, great music, and you're sitting down. What, where do they describe it? I am content. Because godliness plus contentment is great gain. Have you ever have you ever had the Holy Spirit and your work to come together in such a way that when you were doing it, you lost track of time because it was just you were just all in? Have you ever had the Holy Spirit plus your friends? where you're hanging out and you lost track of time and it got super late? Have you ever had the Holy Spirit plus been hiking in the mountains and you just couldn't get enough of it? Have you had the Holy Spirit and great food and great drink and it just felt right? The kind of right that awaits us when Jesus makes all things right. That, my friends, is a taste of something unbelievers just don't know the same way. They enjoy it in passing, but not on the level. And even believers, we can miss out on this because of sin. It's the capacity to do it. It doesn't mean it's automatic. We have the opportunity for an eternal joy not dimmed by rigorous thinking. That the more you press on it and we think, we don't become melancholy and we don't have superficial and shallow joys. We have deep, eternal joys. Have you ever read in the scriptures how the joy of the Lord is our strength? How it says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. That in his presence is the oil of gladness. We have joy forevermore. This is why he's saying at the end of this chapter, the lost are just gathering, collecting, and working themselves to the bone, but they don't get the same kind of enjoyment. But in the scriptures, it's going to say that the meek are going to inherit the earth. That's all going to end up in the lap of the meek. Because his presence mingled in means that all of our Mondays matter. One last illustration, we're done. There's something about his presence. Um, so I, I don't know if you've gotten to this point before, but you got friends or relatives. For me, it's my wife and kids. I can go and do something by myself and I don't enjoy it as much as my wife being there. Now, if we're fighting, all bets are off. But you know what I'm saying. I just like being with my wife. I like walking places with her. I like holding her hand. I like going and skiing okay. But I enjoy skiing a lot more with my kids. If they're there, it just takes it up a notch for me. Right? I may not like skiing as much as them, but if my kids are there, it's better. Except for the ones that are learning. That ruins it. All right? There's something about like being with your people that when you're there with them, it can make the bologna sandwich amazing. Even like when you were young, do you remember? It didn't really matter what you did as long as you were doing it with your friends. Right? Why? Because presence matters. See, the 
difference is when God is present in the havel, in the vanity, it's not about the vanity, it's about God. And His presence brings joy. This is why chasing after things without Him will never bring you life and life abundantly. Let me pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us your presence above all. Give us yourself. It's not sex or money or position or jobs or education or any worldly pursuit. That's not our desire, God. It's you. God, our hearts are restless till they rest in you. And so come and pour out your presence. Teach us to be a people who have your joy as our strength. Pray that in the strong name of Jesus. Everyone said, Amen. Amen. Come.